I don't remember doing video presentations when I was at eBay to clients in Melbourne when I was in Sydney. I don't really don't remember doing it. We would find a time and fly down and spend thousands of dollars on travel budget. So that I think that's a positive. Like you can work faster and you can execute quicker. But the moment my competitor is in the room and I'm not, that's a problem. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. Which company is going to be the next Amazon? No matter who it will be, chances are that the underlying marketplace technology will be provided by the fast-growing business our guest in today's episode represents. In our recent catch-up, we spoke about his sales leadership philosophy, how his sales team reaches decision-makers fast, and the common mistakes sales tech companies make when pitching to him. Please welcome the VP of Sales at Marketplacer, Richard Hankin. Richard, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Thanks, Felix. Thanks for having me. So for those people that don't know you, what is your background and what do you do now? Currently, I'm the Vice President of Sales for Marketplacer for the APAC region. My background has largely been in the e-commerce space since about 2014, so the last sort of six, seven years, predominantly working within the eBay business in Australia and New Zealand, where in merchant acquisition. So I was head of commercial partnerships for the eBay business in Australia, which was a pretty good education and learning or university for me on, on e-commerce within this region, working for the what is the major player and, and my role and my team's contribution there was to partner with and essentially acquire the big merchant partnerships in Australia. So the likes of Woolworths and Bunnings and, and Adidas and these businesses that wanted to sell on the eBay platform. Did that for about four or five years. I worked in another fintech startup business called Cover Genius for about 18 months, which is a tech play within the insurance distribution space. Really, really strong business. Did some, some exciting partnerships with the likes of eBay and Luxury Escapes, et cetera, throughout Asia. And then I kind of got the call back to what was more traditional e-commerce and where my expertise lie. And I'd, and I'd known the marketplace of business for a little while and I'd known the founders for some time and the opportunity to come back in and lead their sales division and take that product far wider in this market and also support the US launch as marketplace or as a SaaS platform. So that's kind of where I'm at the moment. I've been there since March, since the beginning of COVID, started there when it was totally remote, find ourselves a, bit, a little bit deja vu in another lockdown, but we're having tremendous success in that business and who we're partnering with. So it's exciting. Awesome. It was a strategic timing then moving into e-commerce, back into e-commerce during the lockdown and COVID starting. Yeah, you could say strategic, you could say luck. Let's go with strategic. <laughs> I'm mindful we don't want to brag about success through COVID because there's a lot of businesses and a lot of people that have suffered terribly through that process. I've got some friends that are in the hospitality industry and their business has been on its knees. So, But saying that, it's definitely within retail in Australia and New Zealand in this region, the focus back onto e-commerce, not that there wasn't a focus already, but when, when you're closing stores and you're looking at what's profit generating for a business, what we do as a business is quite a transformational piece for businesses. So the likes of Woolworths and some of these businesses we partner with, it's a big step. So COVID or the, the lockdown that is a result of the pandemic has been a bit of a catalyst to drive some of those opportunities for us. In my experience, when you're talking to large retail enterprises within the tech space, they've probably got a roadmap of things a hundred long, but if you're not in the top three or four items on the roadmap, you may as well be last. And so 
a lot of these businesses put a pause on everything to do with the store networks and and merchandising and things like that. And they're like, what can we do in our e-commerce environment, our, our e-commerce business unit, of which we obviously, uh, you know, we firmly sit within that. So we definitely benefited from that, as I think a lot of service businesses did in the industry. And the obviously the rapid growth through through e-commerce that the data point that I keep hearing is we experienced five years of e-commerce growth in five months. I don't think it's going to stay there. I think it falls back to a natural level, but a lot of businesses had to mature very quickly. Yeah, yeah. For those people who are not familiar with Marketplace, uh, what do you guys exactly do and what sort of problem do you solve? Marketplace is a, a SaaS platform and, and we allow businesses to create their own marketplaces experiences. So what I mean by that is we make it easy for businesses to sell things they don't own. So we partnered with Woolworths in this market and, and Woolworths went live a couple of weeks ago. Woolworths on their woolworths.com.au grocery site will be selling products that they don't stock in the stores and they don't stock in their own warehouses and they're fulfilled directly from a third-party supplier where Woolworths takes a commission on the sale instead of a retail margin. So allowing retail businesses to range extend by selling products that they don't own and taking a commission on the sale of those products. And the marketplace of platform enables that by managing all of the friction that exists between the third-party suppliers or sellers through to their own platform. So yeah, we're a essentially allow the business to create their own kind of little Amazon strategy, so to speak, on their own site, as opposed to in the past when you said, I've got a marketplace strategy, it meant that you as a retailer sold on eBay or you sold on on Amazon, this scenario. And, and Maya's done that, Woolworths have done that, Petstock's done that in this market. So we've got a lot of businesses that are really good proof points and allows them to grow really fast, test new categories without taking the risk of buying the, the stock. So yeah, that's where we sit and we've had some great success. Woolworths was a big partnership for us. Salesforce, the venture arm globally took an investment stake in our business late last year. So it's a really great validation for us globally as we push into the US. And yeah, we're having some really good success in the last 12 to 24 months. Awesome. Your sales team, the sales team that you're heading up is spread across Australia, obviously. You also have sales presence in the US. What's your approach to sales leadership and leading that growth journey of Marketplace? My approach is hiring the right people, hiring the key people. It's the people with the right experience, but also the, you know, in this day and age, even coming into marketplace, so there was a huge learning curve for me about the product that we sell, but ultimately putting really smart people around me. I don't need to be the technical expert to describe every nuance of our platform. There are people that can do that in this business. My sales team, we like to stick to process. We like to have a process we bring people through, not to be cookie cutter, but we just want to be repeatable in our message. But I want to hire people that understand how to craft a narrative. It's a very consultative sell that we have. It's not a very transactional sell. Even talking to very large retail businesses in this market, this is quite a new concept, quite a new idea. And they know exactly what they do and they know how to run their own e-commerce store and they know how to run their warehouse and their stores, but the concept of them putting the hat on of all of a sudden, I'm going to be Amazon, so to speak, and play that role, that's quite new and it's a little bit scary. So my team and my sales team needs to be very consultative around helping them identify the things that they don't know in that process. It's not about selling features and functions of a platform. If that was the case, then we could be outlasting and just let them pick it off the shelf, but it's not that type of product or business. So I like to hire people that understand their craft and understand how to tell a story and really consult. And then it's hard with salespeople. You tend to have a tendency to for sort of type A personalities, but sometimes, and I, and I have this struggle myself as well, it's 
you need to make sure you go into a lot of these engagements with two ears and one mouth and listen to the client and understand what they're trying to solve. Sometimes the client will be wrong and you need to delicately steer them back in the right direction. But having the awareness as a salesperson is something that I really look for. Yeah, that's what I also see really commonly in those uh, consultative sales environments where, I mean, you guys obviously have a massive impact on the strategy of any business that you're selling to. It's a very strategic move to introduce a platform like that. So yeah, I think finding the right people is probably challenging in the current environment. Is that right? We're actually pretty lucky, I think. I hear that a bit at the moment. It's the, it's hard to find good people, but we have the advantage at the moment if we've got a little bit of a profile in market, partnerships like Woolworths do a lot to help that story. And so I've managed to hire a couple of people out of some very big tech organizations that had very good, high, well-paying jobs, but they see an opportunity to get on a very hyper-growth tech story, or you know, as we call it, they're trying to jump on the rocket ship here. And we've got a real opportunity for some very fast growth, both locally and internationally. So we're not as established as a as an SAP or an IBM or a Salesforce, but we're nimble and we're fast and it's exciting. It's not all champagne and press releases like it looks like from the outside. It's just some very, very hard grinding work to get there. But we've been pretty lucky to acquire or amass the sort of talent that we have. I kind of pinch myself when I see who we've got. Yeah, excellent. I mean, that's great to hear. I mean, we were just talking about it now earlier, and there will probably age the episode by the time it comes out. But the news about the acquisition of Afterpay just came out. And I guess that puts even more fuel to the fire of the excitement of people joining your team. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, what a what an incredible growth story that has been. I mean, to think of a business that I'm not sure exactly when it was founded. Some of my team at eBay have worked there from the very early stages. So they've been part of that journey. But even as recent as sort of 2017, it was a small business, the pace of which they've executed. So I agree. I mean, you've got Atlassian as kind of the the original that, that really made it in the US and made it globally and Afterpay. It's a, definitely a validation point that Australian tech companies can succeed. And we're not at that scale. I mean, that's the aspiration. We're, not, we're nowhere near at that level yet, of course. But we've had some really significant wins, both locally, competing against large global competitors and at the same time in the US too, beating off businesses that are much more established and funded and resourced than us. And we win because of capability and culture. And that's the feedback that we get. And in Salesforce took an investment in us based on exactly that. They said, we invest in you for capability and culture. But yeah, you read those types of stories with Afterpay and to Nick and Anthony, amazing result. What an exclamation point. With your sales team being set up within Australia across Sydney and Melbourne, and you also have that sales presence in the US, how do you go about collaborating effectively, especially during times of growth where a lot of times you have a very long to-do list and a lot of competing priorities? How do you make sure you still collaborate effectively across your sales team? Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, I, at the moment, my team is sort of equally split between Sydney and Melbourne. So there's no time zone challenges or things like that. But when you add the lockdown piece to it, it can be really challenging. One thing that we've noticed over the course of the last 16 months through COVID or through lockdowns, you know, various lockdowns, and as much as we're in one now in Sydney, my Melbourne counterparts have had it far harder than us. And so we've kind of been able to operate as normal where they've had those long extended periods. We've found operationally and business as usual, it's almost actually been more efficient. We've executed faster. We've been able to just get in when we're responding to multiple RFP tender responses, or you've got lots of work on the fact that we can jump on a Google Meet and we can all get there together or a Zoom call and we can get the work done. So that's the upside. I think 
our efficiency is improved throughout the day and throughout the course of the week. And we do various things such as daily stand-ups if you know if we've got particularly busy weeks and we check ins. Where we've lacked is and I experienced this myself starting in the business is new starters, the opportunity to come and meet people and face to face and spend time that isn't a formal catch up, a walking meeting, a coffee, a a whiteboard session, as much as you can do a whiteboard session with a, a camera pointed at it, it's not the same. And then just general team camaraderie. We've had a few opportunities. We got lucky enough to have a Christmas party in Melbourne. We're able to do that. The Northern Beaches lockdown hit the next day. So we were kind of lucky. We had to rush back, but we got that in. So we've had a few glimmers of hope there. So new starters, I find a challenge in in training and then helping them up and including myself. And then the full collaboration piece around, hey, we're going to spend a day together and we're going to take off our operational hats and think about the strategy, think about the future, just be with each other and share a beer or a glass of wine or whatever and have a bit of fun. That bit is obviously missing at the moment. And I think we work so hard and we're not stressed, but we're working very, very hard and running very, very fast. The opportunity where you've, you know, you have challenging conversations within teams and things are going well and things aren't going well. And sometimes to let the pressure valve off over a drink with somebody or just a personal catch up or something like that, or a team get together is the piece that we would like to be doing on a quarterly basis, if not more. And we don't get to do that. Yeah, I see what you mean. Especially what you said about, you initially said that culture was one of the key parts that Woolworths invested in you guys. And I can imagine that it is challenging to really nurture that culture piece if you're in such a remote environment. But I guess in that case, it comes down to day-to-day behaviors and how you kind of project that across the team, right? It does. And I'm going through like my phone battery twice a day. And I think resisting the urge to email and Slack and things like that, where it can be, hey, you know what, I've got we've got 10 minutes here, let's just have a conversation about this and doing what we're doing now, like having a face-to-face where it's easy if it's a quick catch-up for me to call, but I sometimes I'll text and go, hey, I've just sent you an invite, let's have five minutes and look at each other and understand that. But, you know, everyone's in the same boat at the moment in Australia, like it's not like we're particularly disadvantaged in that. I mean, we did the entire Woolworths tender process without ever meeting them. Right. We met them at the very, very beginning before it came out, but it was like a four or five-month process and there wasn't a single meeting where we we're in a room with them. It can be done. This doesn't restrict you. I think it's kind of the intangible measure of, hey, we're finished now. And Woolworths went live two weeks ago. It would have been fantastic to get the 30, 40 people that worked on that at Marketplace and, and all go out for dinner. But we can't do that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a real reflection of the effectiveness and communication that you need to have these days. So I think once we go back from a digital-only communication model and go back into a hybrid communication model, I think a lot of businesses have really, and a lot of sales teams in particular, have really upskilled in the communication effectiveness department. I agree. Might make the mistake of going to a sales meeting still wearing my Ugg boots because I've been doing that at home. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm a people person. That's why I'm in sales. I like talking to people like this and, and talking to people face-to-face, but I also like the energy of a workshop or a presentation where we're all in a room together and I can read the room and read the clients and even just little things like if I'm presenting my slides and I all of a sudden on particular pieces of software, I can't see their faces and I don't hear. And I think <laughs> people will speak up more in a physical environment than they will in a Zoom call, I've noticed. But saying that, you've got to adapt. I mean, that's just what it is right now. And if someone wants to have a meeting with me and they're based in another city, then I can do that meeting straight away. I don't have to say, hey, I can probably fly down and see you in three weeks time, which only as often as 
18 months ago. That's what it was two years ago. Like even at eBay, I don't remember doing video presentations when I was at eBay to clients in Melbourne when I was in Sydney. I don't really don't remember doing it. We would find a time and fly down and spend thousands of dollars on travel budget. So that I think that's a positive. Like you can work faster and you can execute quicker. But the moment my competitor is in the room and I'm not, that's a problem. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you kind of have to weigh up when you do it and when it's actually worth the effort. But it reminds me what you said about video meetings. It reminds me of that time I pitched to a big client at Fairfax in Melbourne. And then once I arrived in Melbourne, just for that presentation, the Sydney office dialed in. <laughs> yeah, it can be tricky to navigate when it makes sense and when it doesn't to travel. Yeah, absolutely. We spoke about effectiveness, communication effectiveness, but also having the right people on board throughout your growth journey. Considering that you guys probably have a long road ahead of growth, how do you make sure that you really maintain that sales effectiveness and that effectiveness in delivering your consultative approach while scaling your team? Yeah, it's a really good point. And we've been learning as we go a little bit, I suppose. I think it's about finding the balance between being completely cookie cutter and off the shelf in your collateral and your process and and risk losing that kind of engagement with the client or listening to the client or tailoring the message or the not so much the product. I mean, we're a platform, so the product is the product. We sell what it is. But the balance between that versus being completely tailored and consultative in that approach, which doesn't scale, you can't reinvent the wheel every time you have a sales call. And at the same time, when we're adding on new salespeople from all walks of life, it's kind of interesting. In the US, they've been working remotely and living in different cities of the office for 15, 20 years. I mean, but eBay, that half the people I spoke to have never ever been to the office. So you're getting people from all time zones and all walks of life. So you do need a repeatability about what you have. And that's everything from the collateral that gets created. Because the message has to, it can be tailored, but it has to be true to what marketplace there is. And so this is how we talk about this. And this is what we represent. And this is what we believe in and stand for. Have your own voice as a salesperson, of course, but you just need to be singing from the same hymn sheet, so to speak. It's really striking a balance. And I think it starts with the collateral that we create to support those sales processes, everything from pitch decks to PR to marketing collateral to how we approach events and things like that. And so there's a consistency and that's branding. That's all of those pieces. But there's also a, we win deals because of how much we lean in. If it was just comparing apples with apples, then you wouldn't need a sales team. You could just look at the product and away you go. And so we try to strike that balance. As we get bigger and bigger, we probably have to move slightly towards the repeatability cookie cutter end a little bit more just to make sure that it isn't just a free for all. And what they say in one area of the world is different to what we say here. Where we start to tailor is about who we talk to. We talk to the retail segment, people like Woolworths and Meyer. We talk to the brand wholesale segment, people like Nokia that we've partnered with, and then what we call tribe. So people like Fishbrain or some of these businesses that have got big audiences, but they're not necessarily e-commerce businesses. And so the narrative is a nuance of the same narrative for each of those segments. And so we try to create our collateral and craft our narrative to be tailored towards those segments and, and to make sure it resonates with them. I wouldn't say we're perfect at how we find that balance. I think we're better than we used to be. And all of those, all of the collateral, all of the tools and things that our team uses, my personal view is it's got to be there to support and make life easier for a sales exec, not become an administrative burden. You shouldn't have four hours of preparing a slide deck before every single meeting. 
it should be 80% done and then you tailor the 20% is my view. And that's the example of a slide deck. Then the team gets to spend their time going, right, what's going to be important for this meeting? What's my objective? Do I have the right people in the room? What questions am I going to ask the client? That's an effective use of time of preparation, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that mirrors my experience and pretty much all research data that is out there around time spent by sales teams creating or finding content way too long still these days. I think it's a big inefficiency that a lot of businesses still have to solve. And where's also a big opportunity for businesses to operate more effective from a sales perspective in getting their sellers and their sales leaders out in market more without burdening them with administrative tasks. I agree. But there's also nothing worse from a client's perspective than when they see some slides in a deck that are just clearly not meant for them. And I don't mean that they see someone else's logo. I mean, I'm a B2B client, for example, and you're talking to me about something that is clearly for a retail B2C business, like tailor the deck, show that you've prepared, show that you understand my business. We do that a little bit through a process of asking questions upfront, getting the client to actually put their thoughts down and then put us to work. But I agree. I can't have my team spending hours and hours and hours every time they have a sales meeting. They need to be able to be quick on their feet and have the tools at their disposal. So one thing you mentioned really struck a nerve with me about showing that you understand the client's business. I think a common misconception that a lot of sales teams still have is that they enter the sales conversations at the bottom of the hierarchy with the end users, and then they slowly work their ways up until they then eventually meet the PNL owner and are able to talk to the senior decision maker. So in a way that they have to earn that conversation over time. How do you make sure that you speak to the decision makers early in the conversation and show that understanding of their business? Yeah, it's critical, isn't it, to understand that. Part of it is just research. I mean, we're lucky we get a lot of inbound leads into our business. So we try and be as proactive as we can. And we're like, we want to partner with that business. So we should go out and, and find a way to, to speak to them. It's a scale thing too. The smaller the business, the more likely you are to be talking to the decision maker, owner operators and growth businesses. The bigger the business, the more likely you are to be in front of a procurement gatekeeper kind of thing. And so I think a lot of it starts with research. What do we already know about this business? Who can I talk to that already works with them? And then sometimes it's just being overt, talking to the client. Okay, who makes this decision in your business? What's your process? And, and part of that I find is creating advocacy in the business you're talking to. Like by the time you're presenting to someone, it might be someone who runs the e-commerce site, but that's not necessarily, as you said, the person that owns the P&L. But if you can make them an advocate and them a believer, you know, they, all of a sudden they start selling your business internally for you. And so you, you put them on your side of the desk and like, right, how are we going to win this together now? I mean, that's just establishing rapport, I suppose, but making sure that it's not an us and them scenario. Almost asking them who makes this decision is sometimes people forget to do that. What is your process to make this decision? We have our own process we like to run them through. So we, we're quite overt about that. And we say, this is what we typically do. You don't have to do all of these workshops, but this is what you would get if you allowed us to run you through these series of workshops. And by and large, most businesses are interested to do that because we're showing them a path to helping them understand and make a decision. I mean, ultimately, it, it all points towards a green or red light scenario. There is a risk of going too high too early, though, in an engagement. Like sometimes the temptation just to ping the CEO and LinkedIn, <laughs> it rarely works, I think. 
sometimes leveling off I find as well. So I, and I will, will often offer that. So if my team's talking to their counterpart and we say, okay, maybe I'll bring my VP of sales along and we'll talk to your commercial director or we'll offer up my CEO and co-founder of the business. I leverage everything at our disposal. If I can get half an hour of my co-founder's time and it means that the CEO of the business is going to come to a meeting, then we do it all the time. And then it makes it real. Then they've put a face to the name. So again, it goes back to my earlier point around the sales executives knowing their craft and understanding when it's right and when it's not. I mean, just demanding to speak to a decision maker in an engagement. I've seen that too. And that puts people offside. I'm like, well, I'm here. I'm talking to you. I'm the client. Like you're demanding to talk to my boss. I'm not going to let you. You've got to have your craft and understand when it's right to do that. You jump over their head. Instead of creating advocacy, you do the opposite. An RFP process or a tender, as painful as they are, they tend to be structured engagements. So you don't have to worry. Like you're in an engagement, you still try and find the executive decisions and things, but you've been invited. You're part of a process. So they're often easier in that regard. It's where you're turning something from a general interest conversation into, hey, this is something we want to do. But it's so important to get more than one contact point. I learned it the hard way in former life at places like eBay, where I, I had someone who was ready to go, ready to sign, and they leave the business and they haven't told anyone else about it. And you got to start from scratch again. So creating that advocacy across a few different levels is, is important. No, absolutely. I think also what you mentioned about doing your research up front, I think that it's counterintuitive, but ironically, the more senior you go, the more information you find about the strategic priorities because senior executives are the most well-researched audience out there for salespeople. So you will find lots of data, I guess, in your case about e-commerce trends and the more high level strategic considerations versus somebody who is an end user. You might not necessarily understand what their priority is. And I think that's for a lot of salespeople, something that is not considered and something that a lot of people miss out on. But it seems like you guys have that part pretty much nailed. That's always a work in progress. It's horses for courses every time. I, I mean... I suppose it's about sustained pressure, making sure that you're always in the right spot. Yeah. You also mentioned sales collateral and content. Now, especially in the remote sales environment, like what sort of role does content play throughout your sales process and how do you use it effectively? It's been quite a difference for me working at a place like an eBay, which global brand, you know, one of the original Silicon Valley startup brand, even in Australia, the dominance that eBay has in the e-commerce space. It was pretty easy. I could wave the eBay flag and you can kind of get a meeting with any CEO in the country from a retail perspective. It doesn't mean you're successful. You then spent the time kind of dispelling myths about eBay and what it was and what it is. Marketplace is a little bit different because whilst our profile is growing, it's obviously not the scale of eBay's profile. So there are plenty of people that don't know who you are. Or they've heard of you. They just don't know what you do, even though the name is a bit of a giveaway. The collateral from a PR and marketing place, like public facing collateral, I think is really, really important for that sort of mass consumption and getting our, our name out there. I'm a big believer in actual case studies and stories. I and mean, it's all good and well to say, I've got a great strategy. You should listen to what we do. It's even more powerful to say, we've got a great strategy. Here's how we did it for Woolworths. Here's how we did it for Surf Stitch. Here's a client testimonial, like actual tangible examples. These are highly groundbreaking revelations, but I think that that's what rings true because there's a question of people have FOMO. They go, hey, I'm like them. I could do that. Or that's interesting. I don't want to talk to Marketplacer, but now I hear that you've done it for Woolworths. Someone else has taken the risk. You must be real. So that's very powerful. But a lot of that collateral, sometimes we do around event-based stuff. And I've found 
conferences and those type of events, a lot of them aren't great, but the good ones are, are really good opportunities to get people out of their day-to-day operation and where they've got five minutes a week to think about the new idea. Whereas you might have them for two days where they go, you know what, I'm, I'm open-minded. I'm not doing my day-to-day job. I'm thinking about it. I've found digital events though, really challenging and the results have been pretty disappointing. You know, we've done a number of of opportunities where we've done speaking spots and it's just it's just not the same. People are jumping on a conference for an hour to watch someone speak and they're going back to their day job that very minute afterwards. So as opposed to getting a chance to have a cup of coffee with someone at a conference and talk about it and meet them face to face. So we've had to kind of, a lot of the collateral gets amended to suit those types of events. And then the, the final bit of collateral, which I've kind of already talked about is, is our go-to-market sales collateral, like your slide pack, We've got it tailored to certain segments. So I think it's very, very important, but it's also something that is, we can't get lazy on it and get static. It's got to be not refreshing the brand all the time, but we've got to learn. And one of the approaches we take is if you hear someone asks you, you get hearing the same question over and over again, then start to think about answering that question before someone asks it. So you bring that up to the front of the pack and go, I know you're going to ask this question, so I'm going to address it straight away. Then they, that question goes out of their head and they can just relax and focus and listen to what you're saying. We work very closely with our marketing team, our PR team to to support that public facing collateral. At the moment, we're trying to do a lot of thought leadership pieces around our case studies because it's a business transformational pitch, what we're selling, where a retail business should choose this option if they want to step change 30% growth. I mean, if you think you're going to add 10 products and two sellers and get an extra 1% growth, then this strategy isn't for you. It's about actually really making a huge pivot and going, you know what, I'm going to add, I'm going to double the range of product I have available for sale and I'm going to get 30, 50% growth on my e-commerce business. That's what this strategy is. And so you start to talk about those examples and the collateral should support that thought leadership. Got it. Got a really wide variety there of content formats that you can use throughout the conversation. From my experience, kind of where the shift really happens is, as you said, the when it comes to the actual pitch collateral, kind of tailoring that to the situation that you're in, whether it's submitted via email or whether it's delivered through a video conference or whatever, you know, I think that's where a lot of innovation happens on that front to actually tailor it towards the situation and not just have the cookie cutter approach. But yeah, as you said, the proof is always in the pudding. If you have client case studies available and can deliver that social proof, that's often more powerful than anything else you can provide. Because as you said, people have FOMO. Absolutely. And it's credibility. I mean, the most powerful slide in your deck is always the one with your logos of what you've done, I think. Exactly. From your perspective also, in terms of the sales stack that you guys use to go out to market and engage buyers, what sort of tools do you use? What sort of tools would you consider being essential as part of your sales tech stack? And what are the considerations for you when picking tools that add value? From a sales perspective, team, you need you need a good tool for pipeline management, something that's going to be the source of truth for, so you're not having to have individual salespeople running, running their own little black books and spreadsheets. And it's not about tracking activity. It's about having a source of truth that the sales team can use as a support metric and a dashboard that myself and the executive team can use from an analytical point of view, run reports, pull forecasts. It's got to be a singular source of truth that can solve that. We currently use HubSpot in Australia. It's very good for that purpose. We're looking at some other options for CRM capability. So ideally, you have one tool with one source of truth that we're using for pipeline management. We're using for that information source and contact source, but the marketing team is also using it for the CRM engagement, you know, nurturing clients, outreach, 
targeted marketing campaigns that are run out of there. But my overall philosophy, and this is probably a short answer, is it needs to be something that removes friction for salespeople and is a support as opposed to an administrative burden. And I've been on the ladder many times where it just becomes something that I've got to go and update because my manager, and this is not a marketplace, my manager needs a, a review that's happening on quarterly, which at the end of the day is time spent internally and not time spent out selling and engaging with clients. So it needs to be a support and something, but it's a tool that they should have open on their computer every day. It's not something that you go, oh, I've got to do, update this for three hours now. So that's been our approach and we've, it's working pretty well for us at the moment. Who knows what the future holds at the moment? At the moment, we're not a business that we're doing thousands of deals and engaging with thousands of clients. It's in the tens of deals. And so we don't need something that is managing an SMB client list or an SME outreach that has got thousands of engagements and, and lots of automated processes, but it's still important to have it captured all in one spot. So that's probably the major area we have at the moment. Awesome. Throughout your career, I'm sure you've heard dozens, if not uh, hundreds of tech pitches being delivered to you, being in senior positions. What are some of the common mistakes tech sales people make when they pitch to you? The big mistake is to fire straight in to talk about yourself and talk about your product straight away without having asked a single question. Or if I had a one hour meeting with a decision maker, you want to get to some content. I think you want to get your message across, but I think it's you got to read the room, but I'd be spending the first 20 minutes asking them questions and talking to them and understanding what's important and then demonstrate in your message back or your narrative back that you've listened to what they've said. It's pretty simple sales approach to ask questions and then play it back to them. I mean, that's kind of sales 101, but you'd be surprised by how many people just fire off into the cookie cutter approach. And that's usually when the camera turns off and people start doing other things so you finish talking. So I think that would be one, but also just being specific. It's okay to be direct. Don't talk in general terms, like give me a direct point of view, ask me a question. And I don't get pitched at that much from a technical piece. I should probably open myself up to more of that and listen and see what we can, how we can improve. But at the moment we're running along pretty good as it, with what we have. But yeah, I think that would be the main one for me, not understanding the client before you launch into your elevator pitch. That's right. I'm sure you will get lots of very good pitches after this episode goes out now. Now that people know who you guys are and how fast you're growing. They'll know what happens if my camera goes off. <laughs> That's right. Stop talking about yourself. <laughs> so in terms of your advice to other sales leaders, there's probably a lot of people out there that are just entering sales leadership roles for the first time. What would be your advice to somebody who just starts out in a VP of sales role? What are some of the things that people should look out for and just really focus on? There's no easy answer. It's a good question. And I've gone through that growth myself and I've got a long way to go as a sales leader in terms of to be where I'm happy and most effective is often it's a quite a hard transition to go from being a strong salesperson to being a sales leader. And not always the best salespeople make the best sales leaders. And so understanding what you need to do differently. I think one of the key things for me is where you go from not being an individual contributor to managing a team of sales contributors is everyone's like, oh, you're too in the detail. I fundamentally disagree with that. I think if you're not in the detail, you're out of touch. And so you don't need to be on every single sales call. I don't mean become a control freak. And I could probably do with a lot less of that. But you need to be in the engagements with your team and, and have them utilize you as a sales leader because it's a powerful lever 
for your team to be able to bring along the sales leader to a meeting because it adds it adds an emphasis to it, I think. So making sure you're across it and not just away in the ivory tower waiting for the updates. I think that's perhaps a mistake some people might make is they go, well, I'm not going to the meetings anymore. So make sure you're in touch with the client and know what's happening through the process. And then that's the segue is process, is have process and have structure within the team. You don't need to have updates and and sales meetings every single afternoon or every single morning for your team. You're just going to take up their time, but make sure that everyone understands what they're trying to achieve from a, I mean, it's pretty easy in sales. It's pretty black and white at the end of the quarter, whether you hit your number or not. I mean, ultimately that's all salespeople are measured on. You've got to make sure that they know what their number is and know what their number is and know what the team's number is and know what it means to achieve that number. It's all good and well to have a million dollar target to hit. But what does that actually mean? Is that five deals? Is that one deal? Is that 10 deals? How much cover do I need? These types of metrics that the team should just know on the top of their head. They shouldn't have to prepare for that. That should be something that's drilled in across the team. That I've landed two deals, I've got eight to go, and this is what my coverage is. So that process and that talking to the same piece is something that I we could be much better at as a business, as I'm sure most businesses could be. And then understanding how to educate your team to manage up. So don't be a manager that is constantly jumping into their stuff and, and asking for ad hoc updates. You've got to coach your team to manage up to you. You shouldn't be asking for updates. They should be freely coming to you through whatever process you've set up or their desire to want to keep you updated and use you as a as a sales leader in that process. So I think managing up is something that I learned at eBay and definitely something that I take forward in, in keeping my senior managers updated above me. But I think if you can coach that through your team, then it'll make their life a lot easier because you won't be stressing them out at seven o'clock in the morning wanting an update because you've got a call with your boss at eight because they've already kept you up to date. So there's probably the three things, I think. Stay in the detail with the client engagement, set up the right process, and coach your team to manage up. Awesome. That's great advice, Richard. Well, we're running out of time, but thank you so much for sharing lots of insights with our audience. If people want to connect with you after the show, if they enjoyed the conversation as much as I did, where can they find you online and where can they connect with you? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. You find me, Richard Hankin at Marketplacer. And then obviously the Marketplacer website, simply send an email to sales at marketplacer.com. Thanks so much, Richard. Have a great day. Thanks, Felix. Bye. You've been listening to the State of Sales Enablement podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe in your favorite podcast player. If you want to learn more about sales enablement, you'll find a growing number of articles, videos, and templates specifically for enterprise technology businesses at krugermarketing.com learn. That's K-R-U-E-G-E-R marketing.com learn.